G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Your first question might be, hey, isn't that Chris's line? Where's Chris? What's happening? And the answer to that is due to the overwhelming response of questions related to the giants after our recent episodes i thought it would probably be a good idea to just recap over some of the stuff we've talked about in prior episodes and do a bit of a best of answers to giant questions where we just go through your q a and pull out all those questions that people have been asking because they keep coming up again and again so i'm gonna uh Put them all up here as a bit of a quick reference for people who want to just go one place and get all their giant questions answered. And then we can move on with the flood narrative of Genesis 6, which will, of course, be uh, all new material. So looking forward to that. But in the meantime, here is the best of the answers to giant questions Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Here is David's question. Thanks for engaging with me. Here is one for consideration. Just because a view is more prevalent in tradition, does that make it true? For example, the majority view and tradition of messianic thought was a conquering messiah. However, there there was a minority view of a suffering servant messiah that would come first. And obviously today we know this as the Messiah Ben Joseph idea. What are your thoughts? Take it away, Tim. Okay, so this question is in reference to the majority view concerning the so-called angelic interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And David's basically saying just because the majority held that view doesn't make them right. And as I said on the program when I initially responded to David, I agree that it is fallacious to base an argument on popularity or to pretend that there was an absolute consensus. It doesn't change the fact that it was the majority view, but that's beside the point. Now, I could point out that the current prevailing view of how to interpret this passage is now the majority view, so we're not going to argue that it must be correct because the majority today hold that view, especially if we're trying to make a point that the majority are not necessarily correct by virtue of being in the majority. So the the tables have turned on the majority, what view they hold these days. Now, David brought up the Aramaic Targums as an example of a view that differed from the so-called angelic view. But as I pointed out in my book, there was a reason for differing views proceeding from a minority within the early church and within rabbinic Judaism from the 2nd century AD onward. The Targums are quite late, and as such, they reflect later rabbinic Judaism rather than the theology that prevailed in the biblical period. As commentary and expansion on the original biblical text, the Targums present the point of view that the rabbis hoped would prevail And we should note that that was a position against Christianity. 
Now, since David is an apologist, he will no doubt appreciate the importance of working through the issues around anti-Christian rhetoric. And that is exactly what we have in the case of the Jewish explanation of Genesis 6 that arose in the second century AD. Basically, the argument goes that if the sons of God couldn't have children with human women, then neither could God himself have a son through Mary. Remove the precedent and you delegitimize the main event. It's like the T-800 Model 101 going back in time to kill Sarah Connor. Kill the mum, reset the future, the baby can't save humanity. But the view of Genesis 6 that interpreted the sons of God as divine beings was not just a majority view. It was Orthodox Israelite theology. It was Orthodox Jewish theology. It was mainstream Christian theology. In other words, interpretations that fell outside of this reading of the text were considered to be completely alien to the worldview of the people groups that held this understanding as normative. So it seems we have two majority views. The first is the majority view in the biblical period, and the second is the majority view since five centuries after the biblical period. I should also point out that the current majority is shrinking as people become better informed about the original understanding of the text. Let me ask this, which view is closer to the context of biblical authorship? Which view has a tighter grip on realizing authorial intent? In other words, do we not think that the first audience of the scriptures had a better idea of how to understand this text than interpreters from other countries who lived centuries later? Because if we're going to argue that later interpreters got this right and the first audience did not, then we have to explain how it is that the first audience was able to make sense of the relevant text within the context of the broader body of scripture and what motivated them to regard them as sacred and true if they didn't make sense at the time. That's the point I was making earlier when we talk about Eden. If, if something doesn't make sense at the time, why are you going to hang on to that document? My point is, if you're going to communicate effectively to your target audience, the things that you write to them had better make sense according to their understanding. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. I guarantee you that no author of Scripture wrote their message thinking to themselves, well, it's going to be all right because 2,000 years from now, people will finally understand what I've been trying to say this whole time. I just hope that I can baffle them with my brilliance for long enough that they'll preserve these texts until such time as someone comes along with the correct understanding to be able to explain it. So I have a question which reminds me of my old love letters written in high school. Um, why would anyone keep a document that makes no sense to the reader? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the next point we need to talk about is the idea of the scriptures being internally consistent. How did the scriptures survive the scrutiny of hundreds of years of study if the texts didn't have a high degree of internal consistency? Let me put it like this. Why was it okay for people to believe that Abram and Sarai could not have children, and yet God was able to make Sarai conceive? Why was it okay for Israelites to read the story of Samson and not question the deliberate ambiguity around Samson's parentage? How come when an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that his wife Mary will be with child, he doesn't turn around and say, that's impossible? I'm going to answer those questions for you right now. It's because the union of human and divine was not just a concept that they were familiar with or some kind of literary device that makes for interesting reading. This was entirely expected by the people involved and anticipated by the audience of each author because their understanding of the future restoration of all things that they longed for with all their hearts had at its core the reversal of the unholy union of gods and men. And this was achieved in Jesus Christ, foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
it's rare that I come across anyone who realises that this verse presents an impossibility because it says her seed. This is completely unnatural. Only the man has seed. Okay, in, in uh, biblical understanding and uh, even today in our modern medicine, that still makes sense. And yet the woman will have seed without a man. This is divine intervention. So the Messiah was expected to come supernaturally through a woman. Isaac came supernaturally through a woman. Jacob and Esau came supernaturally through a woman. Samson came supernaturally through a woman. John the Baptist came supernaturally through a woman. Every time this happens in Scripture, we're getting closer to Messiah. And finally, Jesus came supernaturally through a woman. David's original question came with an example. He said the majority view and tradition of messianic thought was a conquering Messiah. However, there was a minority view of a suffering servant Messiah that would come first which we know today as the Messiah Ben-Joseph idea. But that's an example of two legitimate and concurrent traditions that come out of the same body of Scripture. The naturalistic concept of the sons of God in Genesis 6 is a view that doesn't have biblical support, isn't culturally coherent, isn't internally consistent with the biblical meta-narrative, and doesn't work together with the prevailing view of the day. So there are four reasons why the example given doesn't serve his argument. I can acknowledge that the Messiah Ben-Joseph concept was not fully realised by many until after the biblical period, but that doesn't negate the fact that the scriptures were consistent with it before it became a more popular view. That's not the same as a late view arising from an absence of biblical support. There are reasons why the supernatural view of Genesis 6 was the majority view, and they didn't include things like, it just sounds more interesting and fun, or everybody else is doing it. This view is culturally coherent, it is internally consistent with the biblical meta-narrative. It works according to basic principles of communication, i.e. the audience knows what the author means. It supports rather than undermines our Christology, and it provides a fuller picture of the accomplished work of Christ. So that's what makes this view correct, majority or otherwise. from Facebook land asks we know Nephilim means the fallen ones we know that angels fell from their first estate service to God eternity with God into sin fallen angels fell and their offspring angel human offspring where did they fall from they did not fall from a first estate from service to God eternity with God they were born inherently sinful so again to be called fallen ones Nephilim what did they fall from mm. Well, this is an interesting issue and one that gets raised all the time. I go into some depth on this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, but since this is such a frequently misunderstood concept, it's one that I am prepared to talk about a bit more in the hopes that we, as the body of Christ, are moving towards some degree of separation from vain traditions and ignorance of the text and into a degree of understanding that's a bit more credible. Firstly, I should point out that Lisa is correct when she says that the Nephilim don't really fall in this text. They're simply born into existence, and as far as the text of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is concerned, they're not spoken of as having done anything wrong. So why this language of fallen ones? Well, as I say, it's got a lot to do with tradition, because ever since medieval times, we've been told 
told that there's some kind of a fall involved, and that comes from the notion of fallen angels, which is one way to look at what the sons of God actually did. For many of us, the idea of fallen angels conjures up pictures of creatures with wings dropping out of the sky like Icarus falling out of his dad's chariot. But the reality is that if we consider heaven to be the place where God is and where he does his thing, then in this text we ought to be considering the Garden of Eden as that place because that's where God is and that's where he does his thing in this text. But even if you consider that the language of falling is connected to the concept of some kind of height in real space-time, you've got to remember that the space and time that we construct in order to have language in which to wrap these concepts is just a man-made construction. Certainly Eden was a higher place to use the language of cosmic geography, and we can see in Genesis 2 that it's the origin of four rivers, which means that it's got some elevation. And Ezekiel 28 makes it very clear when he calls Eden explicitly a mountain. But even so, it's the concept of elevation and the idea that the holy God should be in some elevated position that's really the point. Because we would have spoken the same way about Eden, even if it were in the marshlands of Babylon. This concept of height is meant to convey the separation between the profane and the divine. So we can do away with the concept of divine beings falling out of the sky or even tumbling down a mountainside, if you want to be graphic about it. In fact, earlier traditions from the Second Temple period portray the angels as teachers and guides for mankind who brought the instruction of God and helped mankind along the way. And they get that reading by the way that they interpret the language of the angel of the presence or the angel of the Lord, which are different ways that the scribes talked about Moses having received the law on Sinai. So they go from Moses receiving the ten words to a complete delivery of the entire Torah to them saying that the Torah was given by angels in the time before Moses so that the rabbis can say that even Adam had Torah in the garden. And they need Torah as early as possible because this is how they interpret things like the sacrifices that Cain and Abel brought and other situations that seem to go without resolution if we just read the text at face value. You know, the rabbis are all about Torah. Everyone reads Torah every day. That's all they do. According to the rabbis, everything's about Torah. So that places the angels squarely in the domain of ordinary men because they've got this teaching job to do, which explains how it came about that mankind experienced something of a technological advancement in Genesis 4 where we start reading about metalwork, tent making, music and various other technologies. In the second temple period, these advancements are explained by the teaching ministry of angels. It makes sense then to consider that these dealings between divine beings and humans became quite personal. And you can see how it leaves open the possibility of temptation to form relationships that are ontologically unnatural. And this means that in terms of real space and time, we don't have angels descending to form relationships with these women that they had admired from afar. Instead, it becomes simply a relationship barrier that is broken against the will of God. So it should be clear enough then that there really isn't some kind of a fall from heaven being talked about here, at least not in physical terms. But getting back to the notion of cosmic geography and that concept of a stratified or tiered cosmology in which the divine realm is up in the sky and the earthly realm is, of course, on the land and the bad place is beneath the surface of the land where the dead are buried. If we look at things that way, we can picture a fall in terms of the denial of access, you know. Oh, what's that? You want to be down there with the women? Okay, fine, but don't expect to be able to come back here. You're banned. Let's see how that works out for you. So if we think about levels of access between different realms and we have the divine realm and the human realm and the realm of the dead, those three all separated like that, 
then we can change the terminology from a fall to a limitation of access, which is what I think is really going on. And we talk about it in terms of limited access, then that does away with the problem that we have when we say fall and we immediately think of heaven being in the sky and all those kind of cosmological ideas. Those are useful literary devices, but they don't help us to understand in modern terms, I suppose, what's going on. So, yeah, that, that frames it in more modern terms, but I, I think it's really best to try and stick with the language that the scriptural authors use because it keeps us in that mindset. And we just have to bear in mind that our modern definitions don't work. We need to use the definitions that fit the patterns of scriptural usage and they're not going to conform to our dictionary definitions and that sort of thing. Having got this language of falling under control, the next thing that we would normally be looking at is what people mean when they say angels, but Lisa has been very good at reading and comprehending the words on the pages of her Bible because she can at least appreciate that we're not talking about the angels here. We are in fact talking about the sons of those angels who are called Nephilim. And Lisa is quite right to ask the question because according to this text, the Nephilim did not fall. If we look at the way we just described this language of falling and we put it in more modern terms and we talk about the abandonment of a position that enabled access to all areas, which was given up for limited access that would enable some earthly freedoms that the angels had not previously enjoyed, i.e. marriage and sex and offspring, and we compare that situation to the Nephilim, we find that the two situations are not comparable. The Nephilim did not give up a high position to accept something lower that came with earthly privileges. Instead, the Nephilim was simply born on the earth and they lived and died on the earth. And what they did to bring them the condemnation they received is described in terms of violence rather than sexual misdeeds or other transgressions of that nature. Now, people might argue with my choice of words here and say, well, surely a fall just counts as a sin that results in judgment. So Adam and Eve committed a sin that resulted in a judgment and these rebellious sons of God also committed a sin that resulted in judgment. The Nephilim committed sin that resulted in judgment, so it just keeps happening. Um, can't we just call that a fall? Well, we call that a fall when we talk about Adam and Eve, don't we? We say that that was the fall of man, so if we have the fall of man and we have the fall of the angels, then it makes sense to think of the progeny of those fallen angels as fallen too, because they also committed a sin that resulted in judgment. So... I suppose you could try and argue for that, but then we're left with a problem because the situation of Adam and Eve, we had a transgression which resulted in a loss of access to the place where God lives. And then, of course, you have Cain and Abel. And nobody talks about their situation in terms of a fall, even though technically that's the first time that Scripture uses the term sin. So we have to ask why Cain isn't called a fallen one or something like that. Cain gets exiled, but he does not lose access to the divine realm because he never had it. When we look at the rebellious sons of God, we have a choice made, which is shown in the text of Genesis as seeing and taking the human women, and which is expressed in First Enoch as a great sin committed by a group of angels who took it upon themselves to swear an oath, to carry it out deliberately. You don't see that anywhere else in the primeval history, but again, it results in this lack of access to the place where God is, according to the witness of Jude and Peter. Now, when we look at the Nephilim, they make no decisions, unlike Cain, who was given advice on what to do by God himself. And they suffer no deceptions. They're simply violent creatures that were created by an act of sin. They have no place in the world that God created, either in terms of space and time or, cosmologically speaking, no place for the soul to inhabit. They were born without a purpose or destiny, and yet God will find ways to use them, as we discover later in Scripture. There's just no escaping the fact that the Nephilim never fell in any way. They simply are a product of the appetites of the angels 
and their existence is simply a continuance of those appetites. So that really begs the question, why do people insist on saying that they are the fallen ones? Because if we're doing this correctly, we would have to say that these creatures were the sons of the fallen ones, assuming that the fallen ones are the sons of God. And if that were the case, then the correct term in Hebrew for these offspring would actually be B'nai Ha-Nophalim, sons of the fallen ones. That's very different from the suggested verb form Nafal. Since we went there, let's get into some more textual issues. I mentioned this before, but we'll go over it again because you can't answer the question really without addressing this. The word Nephilim is, like most other Hebrew words, based on a triliteral root, which translated into our English, or transliterated, should I say, uh, would give us the letters N, P, and L, followed by a suffix, which is the M at the end, and that is indicative of the masculine plural form, or where we see it in Aramaic, it's N at the end, but the triliteral of the three letters N, P, and L is all that appears in the text before that suffix because there are no vowels in the original Hebrew manuscripts, which means that we need to rely on context to supply something appropriate to make sense of the word. If we use in English our letter A to fill those spots between the consonants, well, then we get nafal, which means to fall or lie down. And that is, of course, the go-to definition for those people who are content to rely on medieval traditions instead of textual analysis. Rabbi Eleazar, son of Rabbi Simeon, said Nephilim denotes that they hurled the world down. They themselves fell from the world and they filled the world with abortions through their immorality, which is a direct quote from the Genesis Rabbah that gives three different uses for the terminology associated with this word. And really the only way that has any legitimacy is if we consider the notion of falling upon others as in battle. The Genesis Rabbah is a medieval rabbinic text, so we're talking about a thousand years after Christ, which is at least 1,600 years later than the source text of Genesis 6. Some would argue that it's closer to two and a half thousand years later. Incidentally, the mention of abortions there in that quote comes from a different verb form based on the same root, which we would spell as nephel, putting the letter E in those vowel slots. That's a word typically used for stillborn births. You can understand why it doesn't fit in this context in Genesis 6. These offspring were very much alive, but there are other more compelling reasons to go with another interpretation, as we're going to see. And I think that once you've seen this, you're going to think twice before diving into medieval period literature as your default commentary on scripture. Incidentally, I do go through all this stuff in chapter four of my book. But anyway, if we go back to the root form again, and this time we try some different vowels, we can produce nephil. So that's N-E-P-H-I-Y-L in transliteration. And that is the form which gives us the word giants. So what do we have that supports the interpretation of this word as meaning giants? Well, for anyone who's been following studies on the Nephilim for any length of time, you don't really need this question answered for you. But in case we've got listeners who are sceptical, I'm just going to lay out a few points quickly. We haven't got the time to go into depth here, but then again, I did write a book about it. Did I mention that already? It's called Answers to Giant Questions. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, or just follow the links from giantanswers.com. Uh, firstly, a plain reading of Genesis 6 illustrates that the appearance of the Nephilim on the scene provides the catalyst for escalating violence all over the face of the earth. 
Now, if you're small and weak and puny, you're not going to get far before someone puts you in your place. But if you are a mighty one, a hero of some sort, as our text implies, then it might be a bit harder for people to stop you from spreading violence all over the land. The first indicator that we have that these people are giants is the proliferation of violence that they brought about unabated. Secondly, there is another passage of scripture which mentions the Nephilim by name, and we find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. There we find that a tribe of warriors called the Anakim are referred to as Nephilim. These Anakim are spoken of as being tall, according to references in Deuteronomy. So if the unusually tall Anakim are comparable to the Nephilim, it's not unreasonable to suggest that the Nephilim were also unusually tall. I'm just going to throw a little disclaimer in here and say for the record that I don't think that any of the giants spoken of in Scripture were actually incredibly tall. What I mean by that is I think you're going to find people of comparable height on any given weekend playing NBA basketball. You have to realise that the average Israelite man in those times stood about five foot three tall. So even if you take the Greek Septuagint reading of the height of Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which makes him only six foot nine, as opposed to the Masoretic text at nine foot nine, that's still a giant compared to an ordinary guy of five foot three. I hate to put a dent in the whole giant mythos, but to be honest, Shaquille O'Neal would make Og of Bashan shake in his boots. So if anyone doubts the existence of giants because they thought that giants meant something like Jack and the Beanstalk kind of giants or something out of the Lord of the Rings, uh, I would encourage you to reconsider the biblical evidence because there's nothing in scripture that says that they were much bigger than the tallest people we find among us today. And of course, we have historical evidence as well, including eyewitness testimonies concerning the remains of those giants of old. Of course, I'm going to refer to Josephus again, who claimed to have witnessed the remains of pre-flood giants and actually stated that they were on public display at the time. This was in the first century AD. We also have the witness of another Greek historian and writer named Pausanias, who claimed to have been told by some indigenous folks about the remains of the descendants of Anak and the claim was that these remains measured 15 feet in length. This was in the 2nd century AD, and there are more of these. The eyewitness accounts from the Bible lands are important because they corroborate the biblical text by actually naming these giant tribes. Outside of eyewitness accounts, we also have comparative mythology from the surrounding context, that is the people groups around ancient Israel. We have ancient artefacts and monumental stone structures, such as the massive fortifications, in the biblical city of Gath, which was the hometown of Goliath. I could go on, but I think this is sufficient to make the point. There is far more evidence to suggest that the word we find in Genesis 6 verse 4 refers to giants rather than any other interpretive option available to us. It's not the fallen ones. It's not kings and conquerors. It's not Neanderthal man. It's giants. And once we get our head out of the clouds and stop thinking along the lines of fairy tales and that sort of thing, the interpretation just makes a whole lot more sense than the ignorant readings provided by people who haven't even stopped to see if the text says what they tell us it says. So there you go. There's my reasons why I conclude that the word Nephilim has nothing to do with being fallen and everything to do with being giants. And I think that provides a much more satisfactory answer than trying to reconcile that with the biblical text. Neil asked, 
in Hebrews 1.5, it says that angels are not called sons. How does one reconcile this with the teaching that in Genesis 6, the sons of God means angels? All right. Well, thanks, Neil, for sending in that question. It's a good one. I guess our starting point should be the scripture. So let's have a look at the two passages of scripture that you've mentioned, and I'll make a few observations about them. We'll begin in Genesis 6. And that famous passage that we all know so well, reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so that's a fairly straightforward passage with pretty simple terminology. That's fairly easy to read on the face value and understand, except, of course, for the term Nephilim, which, as we know, was best translated in the King James Version as giants. What catches many interpreters of this passage is the fact that individual words on their own may have a meaning or value that's different to that found in phrases, where the terms are compounded together in the form of idiomatic expression. So in this passage, we have that construction, sons of God, which is found only on rare occasions in the Hebrew Bible. And what we're going to see is that if you break that phrase down into individual words, you end up missing the point made by the application of the entire phrase in biblical usage. All right, so let's talk about sons. The Hebrew term there, bene, comes from the root bana, which means to build or establish. Typically, you find this in connection with human beings, and what you find there is the idea that your family is spoken of as your house. And we find that kind of terminology in Scripture all the time in phrases like the house of Israel, the house of Benjamin, or whatever. So the idea of building a house is to establish it by building it up, and of course your house is made of bricks. Bricks are cast in a mould. Each one is like the other because they come from the same mould. So the idea is that if you have a son, then you've established your house by strengthening it with more of the same. You've established your family with an heir to your household. You are, in fact, making a statement that the future of your household is secure because the one who comes after you is just like you. And that leads us to the other common use of the term bene as it is translated sons. If a son is one that comes from the original and is like the original, then someone who shares your attributes and can do what you do can be called your son. And we're not talking about a biological connection anymore. This is the idea of having a similar nature or being in a similar class. This is not about being identical or equal. You would usually find this kind of terminology in the case of the students of a school, for example, or anyone who's training under a master. Interesting. So do you get examples of that in the scriptures? Oh, sure. For example, the prophets often had a group of apprentices under them learning prophecy, taking note of what the prophet had to say, and these were called the sons of the prophets. And they were not in a position to be called prophets yet, and they were certainly not equal to their master, but they were being trained, and they would eventually step into that role in their own right. As another example, you find the son of the king, who has the authority of the king while he's on the king's business, but he's definitely not equal to the king. So we have this idea that as a son, you can be of the same kind, but not necessarily related and not necessarily equal to the person you're said to be the son of. Yeah, that, that's important because when we start talking about being a son of God, there are certain distinctions we have to make, and those are not based on what we know about being a son, but what we know about God. And that's why I say that these individual words take on a lot more nuance when used as part of an idiomatic expression. Now, I've spoken before on several occasions about the uniqueness of God and the way that the word Elohim is not God's name, but a reference to the kind of being that God is. 
if we can even say such a thing. The word Elohim refers to a class of being and specifically what makes an Elohim distinct from anything else is the idea of not being necessarily embodied by nature. And again, I've talked about how there are various classes of Elohim and they include the lesser gods that Yahweh created and the angels and even the spirits of humans who've died. There are about half a dozen different classifications and Yahweh is in a class of one being unique in certain attributes such as being all-knowing, omnipresent, and all-powerful, among others. But the fact that Yahweh is species-unique does not mean that he cannot have other lesser gods who share some of his attributes, and they are called sons because of the fact that they share certain attributes of Yahweh, along with certain roles and responsibilities that they perform, and not on the basis of any kind of biological connection. So the sons of God in the Old Testament framework are those who share certain attributes of God, including but not limited to being by nature non-embodied and having a function of governance over the world. So that term sons of God is a technical term to describe beings of that nature who perform that function. All right, but what about angels? Now, while we're still in the Hebrew Bible, let's talk about angels. Angels in the Bible are referred to as malachim or malak in the singular, and that is a term referring to a messenger. Anyone can be a messenger, they don't need to be a divine being. So it's the context of the passage in which we find Malak that determines whether or not we're talking about a divine being as a messenger. Now that's a really useful distinction to have in mind when reading the Hebrew Bible, but it gets us in trouble when we transfer to the New Testament and start reading in Greek. And again, you'll have heard me say this before in previous episodes, but anyone who's trying to sell you on the idea that Greek is such a superior language with all this technical accuracy really hasn't dealt with the issues because Greek gets really clumsy when we start talking about divine beings. Suddenly everything's an angel and all the nuance and distinction that we had in the Hebrew is lost. So when we get into the second temple period and everybody's using Greek, we find that there just isn't the vocabulary required to draw distinction between different classes of divine beings. We have the term angels used for pretty much everything. And the problem with that is that the word angelos, which is where we get angel, is just like the Hebrew malak. It just means messenger. So when you read the Septuagint or any translation derived from it, you'll find the term for angels used instead of sons, which is misleading because we're getting two technical terms that are not equivalent being confused here. And a messenger, by definition, is simply someone who communicates on behalf of somebody else, which is a far cry from the kind of functional distinction we have with something like the sons of God, who have a similar ontological nature in that they're non-embodied, but they have a very different function, which makes them distinct from Angelos or Malachim. And you can see examples of that kind of function when you read 1 Kings chapter 22 or Daniel chapter 4, for example. Okay, but how does that relate to what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, which Neil was asking about in his uh, question? Let's find out. We're going to talk about the text in Hebrews now and see how this understanding fits with what we read there in chapter 1. I'm just going to read the whole chapter because it's full of distinctions that help to make this point. So you've really got to take the whole thing. As I read this, I'm just going to interject here and there with some notes. From verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All right, so what's happening here is the author is saying that there is some similarity between Christ and the angels in the sense that God has spoken through Christ in order to bring his message to mankind. But then he goes on to talk about how Christ is distinct from angels, and he does this by making a direct association with God the Father. He does this by showing how Jesus is so much like the Father that he represents him exactly. 
And that's not just a matter of ontology, but a function, as we see when he begins to talk about Jesus as the heir of all things and creator of the world. Remember what we talked about earlier with regard to the function of a son as the establishment of the father's house. Uh, on to verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, okay, so here we have more language of equivocation with God in terms of that functional ability to do what God does in creation and in atonement. Christ also has the unique distinction of sitting at God's right hand, which once again is the function of a son enacting the will of the father. To sit at the right hand is to be the one who does what the father wants done. Uh, moving on to verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So verse 4 there is obviously saying that Jesus Christ is superior to angels and then he goes on to explain why. He references Psalm 2, or if you're reading from the Greek canon, it's the latter half of Psalm 1. This is the text he's using to back up his claim of Christ being the inheritor of the world. And again, we have this idea of a father establishing the son. Making somebody your son doesn't just make them a son, it makes you a father. So this language of being begotten is a reference to the establishment of this functionality, which occurred during the incarnation of Christ and is connected directly to his obedience. It's not about birth or adoption or being created or anything like that. That's why when Jesus goes to get baptized, we have the voice from heaven and God declaring that Jesus is his son. You can see this a bit more clearly if you actually read the text from Psalm 2. So I'm just going to quote a few verses here before we return to Hebrews. Uh, this is verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 2. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So that just makes it clear, really, that this is a case of like father, like son, isn't it? And the point is that this is a unique distinction applied only to Jesus Christ and not to any other kind of divine being. Right, right. Um, and from, from verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It should be pretty clear that if the angels are required to worship Jesus Christ, then he's clearly superior to them. Uh, and verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a really interesting reference to throw in there. We talked about the way that this connects back to Genesis 3. If you remember the conclusion to season 3 of the podcast where I talked about this with relation to the cherubim stationed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden and the flame that has the whirling sword or destroyer. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 104, which has thematic connections to Habakkuk 3 and the divine entourage language around the Canaanite deities, Dever and Reshef. And the point of all that is to say that God uses the lesser gods to be his servants, not his equals. So you can see how the Greek term angelos is polemical here because it completely destroys the status of these lesser gods, which would in Hebrew have been referred to as Beneha Elohim, and are now simply relegated to the rank of messengers. That's a deep cut. Uh, moving on to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I was just talking about how the author is belittling the gods of the nations by referring to them as mere messengers. 
And now he rubs it in by explaining that it was the virtue of Christ that really made him distinct from those lesser gods. Uh, back to verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. We get some cosmological language here with the foundation of the earth, which is a reference to the order of things and the governance of the world. So we're talking about the establishment of the principalities and powers, which is supposed to maintain order in the cosmos under God. And now the author is saying that Christ is going to cause them all to lose their position, which upends the order of the world so that it can be gloriously recreated under the authority of Christ. And again, just to be clear, we're talking about dominion and authority here, not about the material elements of the universe. This isn't a science lesson. It's not about mountains and pillars of rock under the ground or something. The eternal God who does not change is going to remain constant while the authority structures and the powers of the world will be destroyed. And since Christ is the unique son of God, he is also uniquely uncreated, eternal and unchanging like his father. And just to finish off the chapter from verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Once again, the author is talking about this sit at my right hand language, which is obviously a unique position to be in, and that applies only to Jesus Christ. And this is in contrast to the function of the angels who are supposed to be bringing mankind into the knowledge of God. That's all really good, but we are running out of time. So let's just put a bow in it. Bring it home, Tim. Bring it home. So with all of that said, to answer the question in a nutshell, there are various nuances in the terminology of sonship which get applied in different ways to different divine beings. And that's why Jesus has this unique position as being co-equal with the Father, whereas the rest of them are subservient to him, in spite of the fact that they're all called sons. The author of Hebrews is going to great pains to establish that the sonship of Jesus Christ is a unique kind of sonship reserved for the creator and heir of the cosmos. Once again, with regard to the Greek terminology of the sons of God being translated as angels of God, that only works because angels are a class of divine beings that share some of the attributes of God, which makes them sons of God at the ontological level as spirits. However, when we consider the sons of God as divine beings, which share God's attributes and functions to a higher degree than that of his divine messengers, we can see that they're clearly distinct. And then, of course, we need to make an even higher level of distinction for someone who is the exact representation of God in every aspect of his nature and function, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is why he is called the only begotten son. I know this stuff can be a bit confusing, so hopefully that wasn't too hard to wrap your head around. Thanks again to Neil for the question, and keep sending them in. Cassie asked in the Fallen Angels and Nephew group on Facebook, I'm sure this has been asked a million times, so I apologise in advance, but I couldn't find it online. My husband has a hard time with this concept. He says the Bible is clear about angels not being able to fornicate. If this is in Scripture, how does this still fit into the narrative? Mm, thanks for the question, Cassie. This is actually one of many questions that I answer in my book, but I'm not going to tell you to just go out and buy it. Who knows, you might want to pick up a copy after hearing this. Incidentally, 
as I mentioned last week, I have started archiving all the stuff that we tackle on this podcast in a searchable format on the website, giantanswers.com, which means that now that we're having this discussion, you will be able to find it online. So let's start with the sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis 6 and what they are. The sons of God, or in Hebrew, the B'nai Ha'elohim, are a class of divine being. They share similarities with angels, but if we're going to talk about them in terms of rank or something like that, then we're going a bit higher up the ladder. These guys are what we will later come to know as the gods of the nations. They don't just carry messages for God. But the reason they're called sons of God is because they're the same kind of being that God is, but to a significantly lesser extent. So what does that mean? It means that just like God, they have their natural residence independent of physical space. They are, by nature, non-embodied. It also means that they're not limited to an intangible existence, but can, in fact, move in and out of the realm of human experience. As created beings, they are not independent of time, however, and that is an important fact. So as a class of divine beings, these sons of God have certain attributes and abilities that we can learn about from seeing their interactions with others in Scripture. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar has an encounter with these sons of God in a dream, and he calls them watchers. This dream later comes to fruition, and a miraculous thing happens to Nebuchadnezzar as a result. You can read that chapter to find out more about that. The sons of God sometimes appear in entourage with God, as seen in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 5, where God's referred to as plague and pestilence follow him as he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Again, I think we've talked about that before on this podcast. So what kind of things can these divine beings actually do in a physical sense? Our best indication of that in a single passage that you can just read through and understand quite readily is in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. This is the story of Abraham's encounter with what the Bible initially calls three men. We later find out that these aren't really men. So the first thing we need to get over is that sometimes the term men really means something like persons. And that's going to be important when we come back to Genesis 6 later on. These three men, as it turns out, happened to be God, along with two other divine beings that the scripture later refers to as angels. So what happens when they come to spend some time with Abraham? They stop and rest. They talk to Abraham, who's able to hear them and talk back to them. They can hear him and understand what he says. Abraham brings food and they eat the food. They also have a drink. After a conversation with Abraham, they go to Sodom. They meet Abraham's nephew, Lot. He offers to wash their feet. They have feet. Lot also brings them food, which they eat. It appears that they have every intention of sleeping for the night in Lot's house after he persuades them to stay. But then, as we know, the people of Sodom, who were hopelessly evil, came to the house because they wanted to have sex with these men, these angels. They obviously believed that this was a physical possibility or they wouldn't have bothered. And it's very clear from the context that it was definitely a sexual experience that these people were after. But Lot's guests were not powerless against the advances of the men of Sodom. And they miraculously caused them to go blind. And they miraculously caused them to go blind after pulling Lot and his family back inside the house. Like they physically grabbed these guys and pulled them back in the house. So what have we learned from this story about the abilities and attributes of divine beings then? Well, what we see in this text is that divine beings can be manifest in a physical form that's not only visible but tangible and fully functional. 
the fact that they can eat and drink tells us that they're capable of having normal working bodies, just like that of a human. The fact that they had all the tangible attributes of humanity and clearly working internal parts as well. I mean, this wasn't just the appearance of embodiment, it was the real thing. That should tell us that we don't have any kind of logical objection to the idea that they were fully functioning from a sexual viewpoint as well. So from a purely ontological perspective, we don't have a physical reason why divine beings such as the sons of God cannot interact with humanity in every conceivable way, pardon the pun, but what about from the perspective of divine order? What if the problem is not that angels can't do these things, but that they just don't for some reason? And there are plenty of people who assume that angels don't do these things. In fact, it's quite common to hear people quoting Jesus to support their argument that it's not even possible. Uh, for example, in Mark 12, verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So the way that people commonly read this is to see the idea of marriage and everything that comes with marriage as being impossible for angels because it says the resurrected dead will not marry or be given in marriage. Dead people who get resurrected are not going to get married because they are like angels. I'm just hoping that the logic of this will sink in and people see that this is a non sequitur. In other words, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. If we're going to say that divine beings cannot have sex with human women on the basis that angels do not get married, we haven't really thought it through. It might not have occurred to some people that you can actually have sex without getting married. Not that I'm saying that's okay. But some people seem to be shocked that it happens. Um, yeah, it happens. I was two years old at my parents' wedding, so I'm speaking from experience. But then maybe the argument is that in the afterlife, we're all going to be disembodied, so then we haven't got the equipment for procreation. Now, I realise that the text says that we will be like the angels, but in what sense are we going to be like the angels? Does that need to be a material equivalence? I mean... We could attack that from two different angles. On the one hand, we just looked at angels in the Old Testament and it's quite obvious that they can possess all the physical attributes that we have, plus more. So if we're going to be like that, then again, what prevents divine beings from being able to do what we can do? And if you think that we're going to be disembodied in the afterlife, well, I've got news for you. That is completely unscriptural. There is literally no support for that anywhere in the entire Bible. That's Platonism, not Christianity. You didn't get that from Jesus, you got it from Plato. So you can chuck that out right away. The Bible never says that we will be disembodied in the afterlife. And again, the Gospel of Luke tackles this. Luke 20, verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. God's children. Where have we heard terminology like that before? Weren't we just talking about the sons of God? But anyway, there are some really important distinctions to be made when we consider these scriptures and the words of Jesus on this matter. And to quote myself briefly from my book, Answers to Giant Questions. To argue that the angels cannot choose in this world what they do not choose in heaven on the basis that we as believers 
will be in a similar position to them in the world to come is flawed logic, which the text does not substantiate. So we've got the world in which we live. We've got heaven where the angels are, and we've got the world to come, which is the resurrection. These are three separate realities. Then we have the distinction between what can be done and what is done, what is possible and what is impossible. You can't just blur the whole lot together. You don't get to say that divine beings are not capable of intercourse with human women because people in the resurrection are not going to get married. It just doesn't follow. By the way, are you wondering why angels in heaven don't get married? It's because they don't need to create children. Of course, if they wanted to have kids, they could do that if they were on the earth, not in heaven. Incidentally, that's probably what was behind Jesus' statement when he said that the Sadducees did not know the scriptures. There is a scripture that says the angels have no need of marriage because they have no need of reproduction. You know where it is? It's in the book of Enoch. So it's pretty interesting that Jesus would refer to that when you don't find it anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. So let's recap and spell out what we've learned here. Divine beings are capable of pretty much everything that humans can do. Divine beings can't have children in heaven, but they can on the earth. The fact that the saints and the angels don't do these things in heaven does not mean that they are not possible on the earth. That's a wrap for this episode of the podcast. We've got a couple more of these best of episodes to do before we get up to date and ready for the flood narrative of Genesis 6, for which, of course, I will be joined by my good friend and co-host Chris Bather. So we look forward to seeing you then. Stick around. Hope you enjoy these compilations. And as I say, there's a couple more to go. And uh, please keep sending in your giant questions and grab a copy of the book if you haven't got that already. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreeSC.com and go to GiantAnswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.